Hello, my technology leader friends. A few updates before the show. First, I have a book recommendation for you today. It's called The E-Myth Revisited. We talk a lot about repeatable processes and teams and business on the show. This book opened my eyes to an entirely new take on the process, and I recommend it to everyone, but I consider it required reading for any co-founder or anyone with an entrepreneurial desire. For those of you following the LeaderBits journey, thank you. We are growing every single day. The latest feature that we've been working on is our same-day help platform. So a big frustration of mine when looking for leadership advice, scanning forums, being a part of a Slack or reading blog posts is that it's information overload. You have no context to who's giving the advice, their qualifications, or their personality type, and your specific situation is always different. So to complement the weekly challenges where you practice the skills that grow you as a technology leader, we're opening up a feature to the members of LeaderBits where you can get same-day help and real advice from me and my team about your specific situation. This is available to all the leadership members from the individual contributors all the way up to the CTOs and everything in between. At LeaderBits, we specialize in the transition from individual contributors to team leads the leader of leaders, and then finally the C-level. If you're at any of these stages or you have teams or individuals struggling through these transitions, then visit leaderbits.io. I'm so excited about this episode. I got to go out after we recorded this and actually meet him in San Francisco. He is an absolutely amazing human being. Today, we are talking to Fred, the CTO of SIF Science, and we discuss scaling a business through the engineering lens, advice for companies going through an acquisition, and why embracing failure can be the key to success. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Slack actually happens to be our most recurring special guest. Yeah. <laughs> Un uninvited special guest, I'm guessing. Yeah. So where are you at today? Um, I am at our office uh, in downtown San Francisco. Downtown San Francisco. I've been out there quite a bit. I was just out there for RSA a few weeks ago. Oh, yeah. We, we went to RSA as well. Um, the city is kind of overtaken by a lot of different people coming in and trying to learn about security. Yeah, I was talking to the Uber driver and he said that you should be here when Salesforce comes because there's so many humans. There's like apparently 120,000 instead of 60,000. So yeah. many humans that the network slows down. Yeah, Dreamforce. Uh, Dreamforce is kind of the conference to be reckoned with. The, the city like literally transforms. Really? Uh, Dreamforce takes over, yeah. Um, you see a whole bunch of new billboard ads go up. Um, there are people in the streets just kind of like organized around different areas of Moscone Center. And it's just the city's overtaken. It's kind of crazy. How long have you been in San Francisco? I've been here about eight years. So I used to live in Seattle, worked at a number of companies and startups up there. And my last startup uh, was acquired by Google. And so as part of the acquisition terms, uh, we were made to relocate down to Mountain View. Mm -hmm. uh, and I hung out at Google for a little over two years. Uh, splitting my time between Mountain View, San Francisco, and New York, 
and then finally uh, moved over all to, to Cif Science, and I've been at Cif six and a half years. I love the website, by the way. It's like some of the most beautiful design I've seen. Yeah, thank you very much. I'll, I'll forward that along to our designers. Um, we, have, we have this vision of kind of, you know, marrying design and technology together in a way that really makes it easy to understand what value we provide. I think uh, a lot of people don't focus enough on design and the storytelling behind uh, the technology and the products they build. Yeah, well, as humans, our memory is based on stories. And so if you're able to tell a good story, like Simon Sinek, right? And you're able to get stuck in someone's memory. And I, so you've been around for six years and a big part of your, your business is machine learning, right? Absolutely. As a, yeah. So you guys were before it was getting hot. So you guys started before everyone was on the uh, AI ML money train. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, there is, there is a train. Um, yeah. I mean, one of the, the funny things here is that machine learning has been around for many decades, the algorithms in particular that power uh, machine learning, but it's only been about the last six or seven years where we've seen this really like widespread uh, usage of the algorithms across various different tasks. And so, yeah, we were right there at the beginning where it started to take off and take shape. There were, you know, I'd say maybe a half dozen popular libraries like scikit-learn and the like that um, provided implementations of the algorithms that you could use, but nothing at the scale that we see today. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to see the, the different projects that emerge. When it started to become real popular and I, I started hearing about it a lot more, I did some research into it and I was like, oh man, I saw this stuff, you know, back in the early 2000s when I was just searching around and, you know, tinkering. And I started reading some of the reports and I'm like reading papers from like 1989 and stuff on like machine learning, white papers, and just these really basic concepts and individuals getting involved. So what exactly does this do? So we're in the business of protecting merchants and internet users from different kinds of bad actors. Um, and that spans a kind of spectrum of fraud and abuse. So when we started out in the early days, uh, the problem that we solved was to protect merchants from what we called payments abuse. This is chargebacks and people uh, using other kinds of stolen credentials and cards to, um, to purchase things online. From there, uh, we evolved to capture different types of fraud and abuse. We learned that you know, bad actors, fraudsters, they're very, very motivated. Um, where there's money, they will go. And uh, secondly, they're really advanced. You know, they're sophisticated. They're starting to deploy more and more sophisticated means of subverting systems. And wherever there's kind of an opportunity for them to get value, uh, they will go. And so we expanded past the uh, you know, payments abuse and started getting into content abuse, account takeover, account type of fraud, like fake accounts promotion abuse, and so on. And so we've grown over the years from solving that one task of uh, payments abuse into building more of a platform approach to protecting merchants from different kinds of bad actors. Yeah, and you've done another area where you did a fantastic job is the content, the educational content. So I was consuming all of it and learning so much about the things you were mentioning about account takeovers. And I, as an engineer, you know, for 15, 17 years, I'm like, oh yeah, that's, a, I, I could build that. Like I, I could build the attacking thing. And I was like, you would need against that. Like I could build that too. Like, oh, I could see how I could do 
do that. Yeah. I was like, oh, you know what? There's like the whole world is coming online. Like, you know, we we've lived through it here. So it's very commonplace to us. But to realize that there are cities in different parts of the world that are actually getting internet for the first time and learning all the things that you can possibly learn and knowing that, oh, if I go attack this cluster and perform this attack, I can actually make money somehow. And so they're, they're seeing it as like, you know, maybe even in a Robin Hood-esque way of like, yeah, let's attack sources that are attackable. So that whole, um, I guess you call them bad actors, the whole concept was made aware to me recently. Like I just didn't have perspective. I've been so buried in business logic and enterprise systems that like, this is, this is something that's, um, it's really interesting me. So I'm glad, thank you for being like the superhero. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, we, we, we go to great lengths to try to educate uh, the world about the different types of fraud. Um, I think just to kind of like touch on what you're saying, I think definitely there are examples of where there are the lone fraudster who's attacking, um, you know, some e-commerce site and trying to use stolen credentials that he or she bought on the, the, uh, the dark web or whatever channel they got these uh, stolen credentials from. But there's a whole different layer that people are completely oblivious to, um, and that's organized crime. Yeah. Uh, so organized crime, I think when, you know, if I were to tell this story to my brother or to a friend, they would think of Italian mobsters, you know, trying to get their taxes, um, collect their taxes <laughs> from the, the, the real estate, the property that they owned across you know, the neighborhoods, um, you know, like Godfather days. Uh, but the nature of organized crime is very, very different today. Um, at least there exists uh, a presence of organized crime on the internet where there are actual businesses that run profit and loss centers where they hire people like you and me who can code uh, specifically with the task of stealing uh, money, funds, value, reputation, identities, and then they have salespeople who carry quota and have to sell the stolen identities, the stolen cards, the stolen value to other fraudsters. This is real business. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of shocking to, to you know, like learn about this, um, but there's a lot of money stolen every single day from across the world. And it happens in the US too. I mean, it's not just these new geographies that are kind of coming online where, um, People are thinking, like in the example you gave, I can go and uh, now, you know, leech funds or steal funds. It happens in the U.S. every single day. So it's, it's kind of shocking, I think, when people really learn the true cost of fraud, the real size and scale of the problem. Oh, man. I have a couple of friends that are in the Washington area, and they were telling me about how there's a big push right now for our offensive systems. And so now this whole concept of, like, uh, conflict in, is like we our countries are now offensively it's like war but like digital but like not so obvious it's like a very slow strange situation are you have you looked into that at all about how we work as countries with that no not at that level but i could imagine that being the case i mean the nature of um attacks and abuse uh, are evolving and changing very, very quickly. And I think like the mental model that, um, you know, most of the world, I would say, has as far as what constitutes fraud, what constitutes abuse is really changing. I mean, our recent kind of uh, election and this notion of fake news and how, um, 
you know, Facebook played a part in uh, allowing adversaries to, to use advertising to convince people of one opinion or not. I mean, I'm not trying to go on one side of this issue or another, but just make clear that we're now learning that there are many tools uh, and they're mostly technology-based, data and information-based uh, that are being used to attack us. And we're, we're just not ready. There's a lot of uh, uh, lack of preparedness, not just in the tools and the technologies that exist there, but in our own mental models of how can we be attacked? You know, if right. I was standing in front of you and I was going to attack you, you would kind of see it, you know, you would understand it. But if I was about to attack your computer system right now, you probably wouldn't have a good sense for how that could come about, what the pain and the downstream problems from that could be. Um, and like what we found with SIFT is that most merchants, as their businesses grow, they don't actually understand um, or they misunderstand how the nature of fraud and abuse on their sites uh, can really lead to the downfall of their businesses, be it through uh, the chargebacks and the, the costs that they have to pay in penalties to their downstream providers, or um, through reputation and identity abuse that, you know, you can go and take a a site and just like abuse it with, um, you know, inappropriate or unsavory things that uh, just destroy the reputation. And that trust is the very fabric, is the very kind of like fiber of why people are using many of these products. And that's at risk. Yeah. And the, well, let's just talk about the unrealistic ability for a human to approve every piece of content just doesn't exist. It doesn't work with any business model period, right? Like it doesn't scale. Yeah, it doesn't scale at all. And so yeah, the need and you're right, the trust, man. I was I was I became a fan reading through your site like because <laughs> it's so true. Like you have we all have these concepts of and we don't speak about it much, but we all have these feelings of brands and there's an unspoken trust associated with them. Like, I was speaking about it first with humans. So I had this one talk I gave that was discussing, you have different people in your life and you literally trust them and apply ratings to them based on the content that they bring into your life. So I know if I get information from one person and they're really involved with this one area that there's like a high trust factor. Historically, they have good information. They have no ulterior motive. They're the stable person. And then other people I know, if I hear something from them, I'm just like, nope. But we yep. also have that same relationship with brands. It's just not talked about a lot. It's not talked about. It's not really, uh, you know, I think to some extent, it's not really understood. There are elements of that where um, there are like external forces, peer pressure, where you think it's a good thing. Like Facebook, I think people just accept it as being a good platform. I don't mean to pick on it, but now that we've learned how Facebook uses the data, now that we've learned uh, what that might entail from a kind of um, experiential perspective, your experience might be totally different from mine. Right. Uh, we're becoming more and more kind of uh, aware and keen to this idea that this data is really, really powerful. So... You're the CTO, correct? Correct. And you guys have scaled. How many people do you have in engineering currently? Uh, we have about 50-ish 50, engineers, yeah. And are you a co-founder of SIFT? I'm not formally a co-founder, no, but I was part of the founding team. Okay, so you are part of the founding team. And so you've grown the engineering from the beginning to where it's at today? Yeah. That's amazing. Congratulations on that. That's the, I mean, 50 people, that's fantastic. 
Yeah, it's been a really great experience. Um, so we're about seven years old. Uh, when we started the company, it was uh, four of us sitting around a conference room <laughs> in a poorly ventilated old abandoned building. It wasn't actually old or abandoned, but it, that kind of felt that way. And yeah, where we are today is uh, we have two offices. Uh, so we do some R&D out of our Seattle office. Uh, we're about 25 people there. Uh, and the other half is about here uh, in San Francisco. Um, and we've scaled the company from, you know, just a couple uh, folks to now I think about 150 people across uh, sales, across marketing um, and biz ops and um, product and engineering and so on. And so, uh, yeah, the company has grown tremendously. We're, we're a real company now. We're, 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 we're really solving a real problem. So it's, it's kind of exciting. So I found that one of the best things in life is to have a meaningful contribution. Like after you get over the financial hurdle, right? And you have a, you meet the Maslow hierarchy of needs to where you can live comfortably. Now it's like the reward comes from not climbing a ladder, but being able to bring more value to more people. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, my kind of view on this is, uh, it fits into this, uh, this, this framework of hard, valuable, and fun. Um, it's, this is something that uh, one of our early investors, uh, Max Levchin, really um, you know, taught us was you should really spend your time working on something that's very, very hard, something that's very, very valuable, and you have to have fun doing it. Um, and the way I describe this is to say, look, we're working in San Francisco and in Seattle. These are two huge tech markets. For any engineer, it would be super easy to walk out the door. You could literally hold a piece of paper on which you used your Sharpie to say like, hey, I can code, give me a job. And somebody would come and like talk to you and you would get a job at working any of the big five companies. I mean, imagine you could pass the interview. So it's not, um, there's no shortage of opportunities. What there is a shortage of is really hard problems that are fun and valuable. And so really, I, I think that, uh, what I have prioritized my career on is working on things that uh, are very, very hard. Uh, that's where I've learned the mo most and forced myself out of my, um, you know, comfort area where, oh, I know how to solve that problem. And, you know, that path is clear to the, the place of, hey, I have no idea how we're going to build this business. Um, I have no idea how we're going to get all the data and deploy all these models and mix them in ensembles and maximize AUCROC for these curves. Uh, and then the valuable side is like, look, we could easily build uh, simple apps that uh, solved a small problem, um, but we want to change the world. We want to kind of help elevate the conversation and the understanding in the world around how fraud and abuse are really disrupting us in negative ways and provide the technology and the product to really solve that in a meaningful way. And then the last element, the fun is, look, you're going to be doing this for a long time. If you can't go to the office and smile and have fun with your coworkers and be proud of the accomplishments, then you're totally doing the wrong thing and you need to kind of uh, reevaluate where you are. So it's really those three things um, that have been the cornerstones of, uh, you know, how I think about it and how uh, I think it, what it takes to really be at a place for an enduring, enduring amount of time. So, I'm going to ask some value questions for the CTOs. We have a large CTO audience, lead engineer audience. And so you've been working on this fun, hard, valuable problem, right? And you've yeah. scaled the team up to 50. 
what comes to mind as like your areas of growth while you've been growing the team? Um, so I think from like the CTO lens, looking at that, uh, I'll just give you a very reductionist kind of like quick overview. Uh, yeah. You know, in the early days, I spent the lion's share of my time coding. Um, we were, I was really focused with the rest of the team on building the product and just kind of finding the value, finding the product market fit. And that involved a lot of hackery, a lot of code that we're not proud of and code that doesn't live anymore, but uh, got us to the point where we could get close to that zero to one um, threshold, you know, like- Yeah, Peter Thiel, I was book right here, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so that was where the lion's share of my time was spent is just trying to understand what is the product? What is the problem? How can we fit these things together? Uh, the next kind of like coarse grain step was, um, making those systems operate and run. Right. So our very initial service was Mongo. It was based on Ruby and rails and, uh, that didn't really scale. I mean, we could get into the reasons why, but you know, as we started taking in the traffic of, uh, tens of thousands of websites, our database and our uh, API server was not able to keep up with the scale. Um, and we moved to a more kind of um, robust infrastructure. We wrote our stack in Java. Uh, we now run on HBase. We now have literally many thousands of machines running in our infrastructure. And so you move from that, I, you know, I spent a lot of my time moving from defining the product to working on, okay, how can we operate and scale this thing so that it keeps up uh, with new traffic, both as uh, we acquire new customers and our existing customers themselves grow, we see more traffic. And right. so uh, we need to invest there. Um, and then the next coarse grain kind of uh, growing uh, was, you know, now rather than work on that infrastructure or working on that product on a, in, in, in the sense of coding every day, um, now get to the stage of figuring out how do we invest what people do we need to bring on? What special specialists do we need? And you start thinking about the people more. And then the next course grain kind of uh, evolution is like, okay, now you're not thinking about people so much, but you're thinking about teams because you have to have a team that's dedicated to, um, you know, basically, uh, you know, operating our infrastructure. Another team is responsible for offline evals and experimentation and the data science and another team is responsible for the front end and the usability and another team is responsible for the design. So you just go up a, a level higher. And then again, you know, being reductionist and very coarse, you know, the next level is, uh, okay, now how can we take these investments and deploy them against bigger market opportunities? How can we further grow and kind of uh, solve meteor and bigger problems. And I'm not sure if that's answering your question. Oh yeah. That's like, it's going in my book, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. You credit in the, in the, in the footnotes. 110%. No, that's good. You, I'm, I'm like sitting over here, like cheering, like, yeah, I know where he's going. He's going to people. I'm like, I know he's going to teams. Cause you got like the, the, the turducken, the series of repeatable processes, they start stacking. You got to figure out teams of teams. That's like the next stage. I'm like, I've been there. And then I'm like, where, but then you, you just came out of nowhere with like investments to deploy against bigger problems. I'm like, yes, haven't heard that. I'm a, I'm a fan. I'm a, I'm a fan of Fred. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise. Thank you. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's the role of the CTO, I think is one of the more dynamic in an organization because you really change what you're working on. I would say quarter by quarter, it, you just have to be very, very mindful and aware of how your time and your investments need to change over the quarters. Um, I mean, it really depends on what the growth of the company is and 
you know, how much traction and, and how much progress the business is making. Uh, but if you're growing at a, you know, healthy clip, then you really need to be reevaluating. I mean, just to be clear with you, the engineers are very unhappy when I write code, even though <laughs> they, 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 you know, double scrutinize what I do. And I totally love it for, I, I love them for it, right? Because they're, they're the ones that are now the stewards of kind of what is our operating, uh, what are the, what is the code that's operating our production systems? And, uh, they internalize it way better than I do at this stage. So here's an interesting reinforcement for you. So in the last year, I've spoken to 100 CTOs, probably like 110 now, and everywhere from two people to 100,000 people, right? And the biggest difference is what you just said. The difference between the companies that grow or that kind of stagnate or you know stay at a similar level is really hung up on at many times it's just the CTO's inability to let go of something they really enjoy doing in order to put their focus on something that they need to be doing in order to get to that next stage. Yeah, I, I, I would uh, underscore that point 100%. Um, you know, this comes back to uh, the way I like to think about problems, the hard, valuable, fun. It is really, really hard to do something that I'm not good at. So I think I'm a really good coder. I think I'm really good at going from zero to one and building systems from nothing. I am not the best. I am not, uh, you know, the most experienced when it comes to scaling organizations, but I know that I'm in a unique position given my experience, given my level, given kind of like the broad view of the company, the customers, the market to be the one to scale us in that way. And so while it is safer and more comfortable to be at home working on, you know, that feature we're trying to launch this quarter that does whatever, it's not the right thing. What the engineering team needs, what the product and uh, the rest of the business needs is me focusing on how to scale the business through the engineering lens. And uh, that's where I spend my time. Have you been getting into the speaking at all? Yeah, um, I've been doing more and more of that. I was just in Dublin talking to, uh, on a panel at MRC. This is Merchant Risk Council. It's kind of major conference around the, the space of fraud and, and abuse and payments. Yeah, I've, I've actually saw, like I was looking, I don't know, a year or two ago online and this ad caught my eye. It's like, do you like to geek out over like six millisecond fraud transactions? And it was some company doing recruiting and I was like, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see what this whole world is. Because I was like, yeah, they were saying like six, six millisecond fraud detection. I'm like, well, that's interesting. I want to see what technology is being deployed there. You know? Yeah. It's yeah. really creative how people are finding different people. One of the, I was talking this morning to the CTO of Asana and they're out your way and they just passed, I think, a hundred engineers. Are you familiar with um, Asana? Oh yeah, absolutely. We're, oh yeah. Uh, users. Oh, really? Yeah. So yeah, I was talking to their CTO like an hour, two hours ago. Fantastic individual, and we were talking about how they're scaling and what they're doing. And I was sharing with him that um, some of the CTOs in that larger space that you're entering in right now, I'm going you're, right now. You're going from the 50 to 100, right? So yeah. the way that he's saying that there's big bottlenecks with recruiting great talent and leadership uh, to scale the organization because you start. To connect those teams of teams, you need great leaders that have strong technical backgrounds. A lot of people with strong technical backgrounds are a little hesitant to move into true leadership roles, right? They don't mind being team managers, but true like leadership roles, it's, it's, I find it's hard to get them to, to move into them you know, at scale, right? To, to move as fast as your company's moving. But 
the point would be that a way I've seen many sex uh, companies do this successfully is by getting involved in the community and having their leaders speak and their different sort of like micro cultures. Like for example, you're at the merchant risk council, but maybe some of your leaders, if you're primarily in, I believe you said like H base, right? That's something that you're in. They'll have people in that, you know, culture as well, doing speaking and outreach and communication because I'm finding that when the leaders are out, the best people look at the leaders and say, I want to work for that person. I like their attitude. I like their culture. I like how they see things. And I get all the time uh, people that come on the show and then they, they'll call me up like a month later and say, hey, an engineer heard me on the show and they reached out to me. And it's like been one of the most fantastic hires because they want it because they, they align the way they think aligns. When you're out there more and people can see who you are as a human, that'll attract you know, your tribe. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, coming back to that statement that I was making is, uh, you know, for engineers today, there's no shortage of opportunities where they can go and work. And I think, you know, as engineering leaders, as CTOs, we have to work really hard to make clear why working at our companies, working on our visions and our businesses are ones that are really exciting and ones where uh, they'll get to learn a lot. I think, you know, if you go down to kind of what motivates a lot of engineers that I've met is, they want to work on hard problems. They want to be acknowledged. They want to learn and they want to have that opportunity for uh, growth in their career. I think if you go and work at one of the, the big five tech companies, the room for growth is kind of mired in, let's say, complexity. It might be politics or bureaucracy, but it's really complex versus the notion of working at a startup where there's really no shortage of hard problems to work on. But the question is, will working on those hard problems get you to where you want to go? And so I think as tech leaders, our job is to kind of provide the clarity and why working at our companies is really exciting, is really rewarding, is really fun and valuable, and how we support um, the growth of the individual. And it's, you know, we're really lucky in that SIFT has grown as a business. It's always kind of hard to kind of fulfill that promise if your company or your business is let's say not performing well, you can't give your engineers more. But as the company grows, the best thing to do is, you know, farm from within, as they say, let the, the people who have been there, who have kind of been through the muck, understood the problems, seen the scaling firsthand and how the technology solutions we built while they work for, you know, 10 QPS to 100 QPS are falling apart at 10,000 QPS and beyond. Let them be the ones that help direct teams at larger scales and say like, oh, I've seen this problem before. Here's what we did. Here's how we encountered it. And then coming back to the earlier thing you were talking about as far as, you know, going out there into the industry and talking about it. I agree 100%. I mean, we, we spent a lot of time at meetups. Um, we've spoken, I think, every year at HBaseCon because we're one of the oh, larger... Hey, there we go. <laughs> yeah, we're one of the larger uh, HBase clusters out there, I would say, given uh, the volume that we, we take on. Um, and then we have our own homegrown events. Uh, it's called Turn Up the Bays, uh, where we dive deep into... Uh, our machine learning infrastructure, how we do evaluations, how we mix uh, the many models, global knowledge, local knowledge, um, how we've effectively deployed RNNs, what it took to do that. And Oh, I'm sorry. What, what's an RNN? I haven't heard that before. A recurrent neural network. Oh, yes. Yeah. Sorry. We, have, we, we speak in TLAs. At yeah. Sift, so, um, Elon Musk would not be happy with you. <laughs> <laughs> have you read his letter about acronyms? 
No, no. Oh, he is like like very outspokenly against acronyms because apparently all his engineers when building the rockets, you know, early on, because it's rocket science, they would call like thrusters, like these long acronyms. And then you'd have to learn all of these acronyms. He's like, no, that's the thing that makes it go faster. Like just Uh, call it what it is, like use plain English. And and so he's got this famous email. I read it. I read his life story in his book. Um, He's got this famous email that he sent out. That's like no more acronyms. And so whenever I hear acronyms, that just like triggers. It's a really hard uh, thing to overcome. I feel like engineers create culture wherever they go. And, you know, as CTOs, it's our responsibility to like shape and hone it. But I've never put one second of focus on uh, PLAs. Uh, I always thought that, you know, yeah, acronyms, you know, every, I feel like everything's an acronym. But right? interesting, uh, that's an interesting uh, tidbit of knowledge about Elon Musk. There, there's your next talk, the uh, <laughs> quantifying the cost of acronyms. There you go. How do you measure that? (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. So have you thought about bumping over to the other coast to pick up the talent on that side of the world? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, the internet is a powerful thing and you you, (laughs) don't quote me on (laughs) that. I'm going to quote you on that. It's going out in history. Yeah. The internet's really powerful. I mean, you don't necessarily need to be in the same office. You guys are somewhere in Boston or on the East coast, right? So we're having this interview uh, with at least 70 milliseconds lag and we're doing just fine. I think there's a lot of opportunity to tap into, uh, you know, the really rich, the really, uh, strong and experienced engineers that are around the world. Uh, while I worked at Google, uh, you know, it was kind of just the norm. It was kind of like expected that when you had meetings, you could very well be meeting with people that were geo distributed across not only the country, but even the world. And uh, with SIFT, that was a really hard learning, learning to operate in a mode where, oh, I have a meeting with someone. Okay, they're in Seattle. Okay, we gotta get onto Zoom to have this call. We need a conference room. There's a lot of tools and kind of infrastructure you need to make it happen. But once you do, what we've found is there's really, really strong talent in Seattle, really highly uh, experienced, motivated, and just passionate people. And we believe that they exist not just in Seattle and you know California, but the rest of the world. And uh, our plans are very much to expand globally to, to tap into that talent, not just engineering, mind you, but other parts of the company as well. And it's great to have all that culture together. So... Yeah, I would like to, if you guys did East Coast stuff, that'd be really, I would be interested to, to hear about that. Just when you do, I think you, well, hold on a second, I'll say it like this. I know you're going to, so when it happens, just be like, ping me and say, hey, we're doing some East Coast stuff, but I'll actually be out there. So I'm meeting with the CTO of T-Mobile, who was on the show last week. Very cool guy. So if you want a really cool person that's out there, uh, his name's Cody, C, uh, CIO or CTO of T-Mobile. And then Kevin... Kevin Scott is the CTO of all the CTOs at Microsoft. Yeah, I know and, Kevin. Oh, you know Kevin? Yep. He's he's on uh, the 14th, so he's on like less than two weeks. Oh, cool. Yeah, so I'm going out uh, to your neck of the woods to hang out with Kevin, Cody, uh, the CTO of Asana, and then it would be cool to stop by and see your offices too. Yeah, let's make it happen. Yeah, I'll be out there for like a week, so I'm just going to bounce around and say hi to everybody for a day because it's so cool to like, I get to hang out with you and find, you know, people I really like through talking and then it's just cool to see the offices. Everyone's so different. And then I, I, what I do is I go around and collect information from everybody and then I just share it and help them out. Yeah, that sounds great. All right. So what is on your mind 
today that you're really excited about that you're working on as a CTO? Like what's, what's your focus right now today? Like when you woke up this morning, other than being excited to hang out with me, (laughs) (laughs) what, what big initiative are you working on? Yeah. uh, So there are a couple, I think, uh, you know, from, from my investment of time perspective, there are things I work on for the business, things that I work on for the technology and product. Um, From the business perspective, uh, we just raised um, a recent round of financing. You can go look up the details, but it was a, a fair amount of cash. And some of the things that we're working on right now are trying to formalize how we want to invest that. It kind of goes without saying, but when investors give you money, they're not looking for you to kind of return a modest amount. It's, we're not savings accounts or, you know, CD. Right. Uh, we have to deploy that capital aggressively in growing. And so from the business perspective, you know, as SIFT kind of evolves its platform of different fraud and abuse products, uh, we're trying to figure out how to invest that. Secondly, um, I've been spending a fair amount of my time actually doing outbound work with the sales team. So evangelizing how our product works, how our technology works, and kind of like pulling the curtain back a little bit uh, with some of the enterprise customers that we work with, sitting in with their data science teams, their engineering teams, and just taking the direct questions like, hey, you say you do this on your website, how does that actually work? So we'll do a whiteboard, uh, we'll draw it, and we'll just kind of get into the details. And you know, candidly, that's something we're learning is really, really valuable uh, for the the enterprise class of merchant that's still kind of unsure, what is machine learning? How could it fit into my business? And so one of the things I'm working on is trying to make that more clear and more kind of easy to accept. Because while you and I could talk about it and say, hey, these algorithms have been around for dozens of years, and you know, you can go and download any number of examples that will be a perfect cat classifier, enterprises don't operate in that same way, and they need to have a deeper, more clear understanding. And so that's where I'm working on uh, my investment on the business side has been. On the technology side, one of the, the roles that I play is uh, uh, kind of an experimenter, a tinkerer. And so there's a very, very small team of us. It's just two of us. And we are experimenting with what I like to call, you know, wild ass crazy ideas. Uh, we have no idea if these things are going to, you know, manifest as anything meaningful. It's like your labs. Yeah, it's kind of our labs. We try not to put too much expectation on it because, you know, if you set the bar low, anything you do, you can kind of, uh, you can do well. That's how I do my marriage, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) My wife. but, But the goal here is to kind of do things that, you know, we wouldn't put a first class investment of a team or you know, people who are already working against a clear area of ownership. These are net new kind of experimental investments. And as those investments kind of uh, become more clear, then we start putting a deeper and more meaningful investment behind them. So those are the very coarse grain kind of the areas where I'm working on. So that ability to not interrupt your processes that are executing in order to try something else, is like, it's like, you've got it. It's working. It's going. That's like, that's like one of my best person in this area, but I got to try this. It's like, you can't, you can't rip them out of their routine. They, it doesn't work. No, I agree with that hundred percent. I think engineers in particular, because like this, it's this balance of uh, creative and very highly intellectual work. Uh, so when you break that cycle, there's this um, activation energy that it takes for them to re establish their mindset and their thinking. And so when you break it, it's actually not just 
the cost of the disruption and the amount of time they're not working, but also the amount of time it takes for them to re-engage into that, uh, into the zone as it were, right? Yeah. People who are doing more transactional kinds of things, like, oh, I can stop and go do this. Okay, now go back to that. The activation costs a lot less. Yeah, so I've noticed this too. So what, what I found that I was doing is I'm programming a system and into like the, the individual has quantified how they're valuable by the output, by their output. So they say, all right, I do this and I'm valuable. And so if you requantify that output, there's like a lag and there's a whole, like the cost you're talking about, like associated with them figuring out, all right, what am I doing now? And then how do I go back to bringing you the value that I was before? And that's uh, a process that I see that I, I noticed, I'll just be upfront about it. I was doing it and then I noticed and I had to stop doing it because it, it, it causes issues. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's very, very expensive contact switching. Yeah. And while those teams are working, like I just want them to hit their goals and have the space and room to, to deliver against what they're doing. I don't want to disrupt them. So I've got a couple uh, quick questions for you that have come in. And the first one is, struggles during the acquisition or anything that just comes to mind like about your experience you said you you've had a couple acquisitions in your career and if you were mentoring a cto that was maybe a half or a third of your size and they were going through an acquisition what just comes to mind as what what you would tell them that's an interesting question uh, I mean, the acquisition, Google acquired us uh, seven or eight years ago, and that was the most opaque process that, so I'll just give you a little more context. At the time of the acquisition, actually Facebook was at the table and Google were at the table, and ultimately it turned out that uh, Google acquired us. And just for a little more context, you know, Jambul was in the business of doing payments for games. One of the reasons that we were really attractive was we had this native flash widget. And so you didn't have to bust out of the game and hit a iframe to do your transaction. You could stay native in there. Um, and Facebook was coming with Facebook credits and they were going to kind of like destroy the world of payments and virtual goods. And then Google was trying to create Google Me or what became Google Plus, and they were going to have a games thing. So that's how the whole conversation got started. And because, you know, I think neither Google nor Facebook was really clear about what their vision was, there was this opacity to the whole process that just made it very, very strange. And so, you know, for us, we were brought in to do interviews. Uh, it was as if we were standalone engineers going through the process ourselves. And then they did a team-based code review. So we had to show our lines of code and, you know, a, an architect from Facebook or an architect from Google would point and say like, why did you create this abstraction? Like, how do you deal with logging? Um, where do your logs go? What is the lifetime of the logs? How are they encrypted? Yeah, how are the keys managed? How do you rotate the keys? And so on and so forth. And it was just this kind of like probing conversation. And the only thing I remember was, this was so opaque. They did not want to share any reasoning or justification for anything that they were doing. And we were just at their mercy. So if they would say, hey, now we need to go and you know, we need credentials to your AWS account so we can kind of like poke around and see how you set up your infrastructure. We just kind of said, okay, we can kind of give you this access and you can view this. But we had no control. And I don't know if this is a learning more so as an FYI, be prepared for that. Um, these big companies, they get to call the shots. And I think the way acquisitions have gone over the last five or six years, 
it's kind of like more in their favor. They get the, they get the decision, right? You really don't. Um, the other thing is you can't lose sight of what you're working on and the value you need to bring to your customers. It's probably the case that your uh, acquisition is going to not go through. That's more likely than not going to be the outcome. It's not to be you know, disparaging about the effort you put forward or the product or the business or the people, just the way things tend to go. So you have to really balance and manage the demands that the acquirer is going to bring to you in the context of what you're still trying to do because it's a very low probability that things are going to turn out. And we effectively stalled all development. We went into strict maintenance mode for about uh, four months that the acquisition took place. And so, you know, we would come in and we'd say like, oh, you know, the MySQL cluster is still working. We didn't get paged. What do we do today? And the CTO would say, like, look, we don't want to disrupt anything because we don't want to change the conversation we've had with, uh, with Google as far as what we're building, what that product looks like. So we'd work on really simple things that were not very exciting. And uh, I think if the acquisition hadn't gone through, we'd all feel really demoralized. Yeah. Uh, so keeping that balance um, against the vision, against the product and your customers and the business is really, really critical. So the first time I faced that, it was just, it was mind blowing to me because I was the CTO and it was a, my first acquisition due diligence. And so I'm sitting there and the CEO is like, hey, Joel, so, you know, give, give them access to everything. I'm like, but we, we just started talking to them like two weeks ago. I'm like, are there like NDAs signed? Like, did we sign stuff with them? Like, just give them the code. I'm like, but that's like our intellectual property, man. Like, that's the only thing that we have. We give them our code. They'll see everything that makes us unique. And they're in the same business as us. Like, like the, this guy owns a portfolio of companies of which are our competitors. I'm like, we're essentially just going to open up like, or it's like going to open up our safe and say, Hey, look at everything. And you happen to are related to our competitors. It is very interesting thing to see how that happens. So like you, you don't imagine that that's even something that's possible. Right. And then when you go through it, you're like, this is how it happens. This is not very secure. This is very odd. And then, yeah, I would say that my experience was very similar to you where the people are talking. I was left out like no one really knows exactly what's happening. I don't, you weren't the CTO, correct? You were like head of engineering. I, I was one of the principal engineers. Yeah. You're, you were a principal engineer. Yeah. So there was like, it was basically the two CEOs kind of going back and forth with information and they would go talk to their team and come back and it was very limited and it was, um, yeah, yeah. 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 I think the other thing, um, this, you didn't ask this question, but I'll share is, I think a lot of people, at least you know, five or ten years ago, equated the notion with uh, the, the notion of an acquisition with success. Um, and I, I would kind of like say that that's not success. You know, if you're lucky enough to be acquired by a company that's doing the same thing, trying to solve the same problem, and reinforcing uh, the the effort that you've made with deeper resources, deeper investment, then yeah, it could be a success. But uh, the acquisition to Google, not to be disparaging about Google, was no, they, you know, they, they hired our team. We went in and we were given the mandate of basically rewriting Google Checkout, uh, which was kind of a dead product at the time. And so we rewrote Google Checkout. Uh, we redid their payments. And it's probably the payments thing you do use today to buy stuff on Google. And so that wasn't our vision. And I would say for you know, CTOs for executives of companies that are looking to, to be acquired, beware, because you may not get what you actually think you're going to get. 
um, and try to be clear uh, with the choir about what, what your team is going to do, what they're going to get to own. Don't just think about the price tag that's going to come along with the, the acquisition. Think about what you guys will be doing years after that acquisition happens. Um, I don't think we spent very much time on that. So that was a little, that was a little jarring. We were, original, we were originally acquired to work on what's called Google Plus today. Back then it was Google Me. Uh, and then at the 11th hour, they just, oh, no, no, you guys are going to go rewrite checkout. And so we didn't really think about that process in a way, or at least from my lens, we didn't think about that process in a way that was more than just the monetary uh, financial transaction of the acquisition. Yeah. And for them, it was probably like an aqua hire thing, right? They're like, this is just a really expensive recruiting cost. Right. We're going to deduct <laughs> the, the amount of revenue they make. And then we're actually just picking them up for like 3x the recruiting cost. So we want that team. We'll pick them up and put them on yeah. payments. I mean, that's what we rebuilt all of Google Payments. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's pretty cool, though. That's, a, that's an awesome project. Yeah. Right? That was a tremendous learning. Yeah. One of my first projects in real estate. I saw, by the way, we, we were in real estate at the same time. Um, you were in 2005 solving problems with Zillow yeah. Real Estate. Yeah, I was speaking at like Inman and things like that. If you ever went to that conference, no, I didn't. but okay, yeah, there's just like a there's this the big conference in real estate. It's called Inman, and it happens once a year in San Francisco, and then once a year in New York City. But my product got acquired in real estate, and I didn't. I was really excited because it was the first time I'd ever licensed any technology or didn't did anything like that. And I didn't realize that like it. I did. I I didn't think about it. I saw money. They're like, oh, we're gonna give you money for this. And I'm like, yes. I was like, let's do it. What do we need to do? And because I was, I was actually building a product like alone, like myself, right? My parents were in real estate. So I was solving a problem that they had. And then an agent went from one location to another location and then told them that, oh, this kid down in, you know, on the East Coast, he built this. And so they flew out to see me and they're like, oh, we're going to buy it up. I'm like, oh, this is very cool. But then I realized that there was, it was an aqua hire. Like there was no, there was no nothing for me to do after that. And then to further it more is they ended up just like shutting it down. Yeah. yeah that's, they just wanted to buy it and own it so that someone else didn't own yeah, it. Yeah. It's uh, it's, it's one of the darker sides of the, the acquisitions, but yeah. But thank God it happened early on in my career because now I know what questions to ask. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I know how to position it. And I learned that there's this like whole world where you don't just have to like sell it for, a dollar amount you can get residual income from it and like oh, yeah, this, you can, yeah. I mean, the thing is that's actually a good point too is you have to remember that this is two-sided yep As the one being acquired you do have some say when you come to the point of like google or uh, you know in the case of these big companies you probably have a little less say than you know in uh in in other cases uh but you do have a say and you just have to know what to ask for uh and so that that's a really important point to bring up yeah. And then knowing how the business is structured between companies, like you could be uh, considered a portion, an investment in like a $50 million fund that's planning to flip it around back to a billion dollar fund. Mm. Like you can be in a portfolio deal and you can know where you sit. There's, I did, uh, so after I did a couple deals, I ended up doing uh, due diligence. <laughs> I was on the other side of it. Yeah. I ended up doing te technology due diligence for private equity firms because I just had made relationships. I did like four projects back to back, licensed them all. And then each one, there's investors on both sides. So you get to know them by going through the process. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you've made tons of relationships like that, right? Because they're, they're ultimately, all these abstract things we're talking about, there's humans that represent them. Absolutely. So you get, to, 
you get to know them during these processes and then everyone goes from project to project. So, uh, yeah, after I did that, I just got that, that was like right in 2013, 14, 15, when things really started to take off in the private equity market. And everyone was just look at this, look at that, look at this. And yeah, that's what started this whole book and everything is all the trends I saw looking. And I went from being on a project like for nine months, you know, building something with groups of people and things like that to seeing four projects a week and seeing inside of teams. And I'm, I'm like, whoa. Well, thank you so much. I've got, I've got one last question. Uh, Elon Musk time machine. You go to his house. He's got a time machine, right? Okay. Actually, you're hanging out with him. He's doing the test run. Like it's boring. You're doing flamethrowers. He happens to have a time machine there at that event. You go in. You get to give specific advice to yourself. Like the most useful advice you could possibly give to yourself. Very short, very quick. Your past self. What would you tell yourself? Um, wow, that's a good question. I thought you were going to ask me a question about Elon Musk. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I think. The, the advice I would tell myself is to embrace failure. Um, I've been really fortunate in my career to, you know, to have worked at uh, companies that have been really formative to my experience and have they, they themselves have grown. But I have experienced a lot of failure in my life. And I think at first when I was confronted with it, I was kind of dismayed. I was kind of saddened about it. But, you know, life is pretty long. And there's, you know, I'm one of these people that's probably going to be working into my 80s. I'll probably be a terrible engineer at that age, but I'm excited to do it um, and take on new challenges. And so what I would tell people is embrace the failure and try to be clear and specific about what it is that you learned from that failure. And if you can, write it down, write it in a Google Doc or whatever it is, um, and say like in 2005, I worked on this project and we thought it was going to be an acquisition or I thought I'd have this tremendous product market fit and I invested this much time and so on, but it failed. And be really clear and objective about it. Try to take the sentimental kind of like, oh man, I'm such a loser and this didn't work out and if only I'd done this. Don't dwell on that side. Just be critical in an objective way about why you failed and then uh, write it down. I think the act of writing it down has helped me. So I'm kind of cheating by telling you this is something I actually do. Uh, this is the advice I would kind of- uh, Start earlier. Yeah, I would just start earlier and be less kind of emotional um, about failures. You know, there's like this, I don't know if it's Warren Buffett or John Bogle, but they, they say something like, you know, there's no room in investing uh, for emotion, right? You can't be emotional about investing. I would apply that same adage to failure. You know, you're going to fail a lot and that's actually really, really valuable. Make sure you extract the value from it and don't allow yourself to repeat it. This is beautiful. Okay. This is, you've got to, you're going to have like two mentions in my, in my next book. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not kidding you. Unintentionally, the call has like touched 60% of the outline for, for my second book. So inspired to do this together. <laughs> yes. I'm going to say you're going to get the, the pre-copy to, you know, look, look through it and, and judge it and give me feedback prior to its release. But the first one did very well, modern CTO. Then I have all of these CTOs I know now, which has just been, I guess I was like one of the first people to stand up and like wave my hand and talk about it. Cause everyone's coming out of the woodwork to talk to me now. So I love it. I just love sharing and talking, but everything that, that I've learned in this past year that I didn't cover in the book, I'm putting it all into a second book called Everything But Code, right? 
that's a right? lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everything but code, but it's geared towards, you know, the people in the transition and there's many levels of transition. And then it's about sharing all of this information so that the next generation of people can do better than we did. And that's what we do. Like even on a DNA based level, DNA replicates and shares information down the chain. And so I figured it's the most, one of the most human things I can do to contribute is just to share information down the chain. Yeah. I think that's really great. I'm excited to see, I'm excited to see that book come, come out. Awesome. Fred, thank you so much, man. We did it. We had a podcast. And it was amazing. You're like a superhero with the way you're saving the planet from the fraud and the destruction. And then you ought, you were, I know you were born to do this, Fred, because your hair, you have superhero hair. Oh, it's like, so. <laughs> you have Clark Kent hair. It's like, of course. Right? Yeah. Uh, I did that. That wasn't an intentional thing. I think I just overdo for a haircut, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Awesome. Thank you so much. I'll be out there in a couple of weeks and I'll say hello. Okay, perfect. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Joel. Thank you so much, man. You have a great day. You too. Thank you so much for listening to the Modern CTO Podcast. Share this. Get the word out. Thank you guys so much. I couldn't do without you. I appreciate it. You guys are the absolute best.